Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is July 18th, 2018, and we have a special guest today, United States Senator Jim Langford from Oklahoma. And uh, I'm sitting in Mequon, Wisconsin, and you are in your office in Washington, D.C. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Glad to be able to do it. Well, let's talk about uh, the the news of the day. Uh, Donald Trump's meeting with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and the breaking news that uh, when he's asked whether or not the Russians are still targeting the U.S., President uh, Trump said, um, thank you very much, no. And, of course, this flatly contradicts what the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, said last week. So, Senator, your your reaction, the president of the United States continues to cast doubt on whether or not this country was attacked by the Russians. So what I've heard of late is that uh, when he said thank you very much, no, was not an answer to that question. It was to the press as they're leaving, uh, saying, no, I'm not going to take any more questions. Thank you for being here. No, I'm not taking more questions. Rather than a no, we're not actually um, uh, still being affected by the Russians. So I'll try to get the full context of it. uh, But this uh, it sounds like the White House has very, very quickly walked that back and said, no, that 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 was not at all what he tried to say. Well, speaking of walkbacks, this has been a week of walkbacks after that performance in in Helsinki. Uh, The the president yesterday said that that he had misspoken, that he had dropped a contraction, that there was an an apostrophe NT when instead of saying, I don't know why the Russians would uh, hack the election, he meant to say wouldn't. Senator, do you accept that explanation for what happened on Monday? I, w- I would have to agree with this second version. I don't know why you wouldn't think that the Russians hacked into the system. As much evidence as there is out there, as much as we have seen in intelligence information, uh, it's it's very, very clear the Russians were trying to interfere in our election system, both on social media and trying to be able to just stir things up, but also um, by uh, trying to attack at least 21 different states. Uh, to be able to go in their election systems, downloading uh, voter data files, trying to be able to go after information on election systems and software. Uh, They were being very strategic in what they were doing. So I I would completely agree with his second version. How about that? Uh, That I don't know why you wouldn't think uh, that the Russians were engaged. The big issue in the days ahead is not what the president said, is what the White House does. Uh, After the uh, Mueller indictments on the Internet Research Agency and the oligarchs and such that were actually doing the social media interference, sanctions came down on those groups and those individuals pretty quickly. I would anticipate sanctions would come down quickly as well on the indictments that the Mueller team just put out this past week. If they don't, that's the bigger question for me. Why was the you you put out a statement uh, making that that uh, that that point that there is plenty of evidence the Russians aggressively attempted to interfere in our election? Why was it so difficult for the president of the United States standing next to Vladimir Putin with the eyes of the world on him to say the same thing? Why would the president of the United States side with Putin's denials over the consensus of the American intelligence agencies? I have no idea why he would do that. That was a prime moment that the president uh, could be strong to be able to speak out for both American values, but the facts that we also have and to confront someone who's deliberately tried to be able to interfere in our democracy. Uh, It's a good moment on the uh, international stage that's missed. 
Uh, if he has a second moment to be able to visit with Putin, I hope he won't miss that opportunity again. But that was that was not our best moment as a nation, and it was not the clearest moment from the president to be able to say that. Uh, and going into the event, even blaming America for the problems with the Russian-American relationships also seemed very odd. I was critical of President Obama when he mm-hmm. traveled around the world blaming America for the, the problems that are around the world. I'd be very critical as well of President Trump blaming America for the problems with Russia. Russia is the issue. While uh, in the United States, we make our own mistakes. We don't limit the press. We don't jail dissidents. We don't assassinate people uh, that disagree with us in the UK. We're not invading Ukraine, Crimea, and Georgia. Uh, We're not cutting off energy supplies to Eastern Europe uh, in the heart of winter to try to use leverage on them. We don't do that. So our problems with Russia are not the United States. Our problem with Russia is Russia. Let's put it in the larger context of the last week. Are you at all concerned with his approach to NATO? We're hearing reports from the NATO nations that they are that they're shaking their heads about this. And, and even though there are no concrete actions to degrade the the alliance, there's there's certainly a sense that the that the world order is is under is under some siege. So and last night he gave an interview in which he appeared to be questioning our Article Five commitment. Uh, to defend our allies. Uh, your your take on the status of NATO in the United States? Well, the, NATO is our strong alliance, and we should keep that. Uh, NATO has been exceptionally important for bringing about stability and peace into Europe, where Europe's been in total chaos for millennia, fighting back and forth. There's been relative peace since the organization uh, the, uh, since NATO has formed as an organization. So it's exceptionally important not only to Europe, but to us. Uh, as most folks know, the one time that Article 5 has been used is after the United States was attacked um, uh, at 9-11, and the rest of NATO came to our defense to be able to engage in Afghanistan, uh, to be able to uh, represent all of NATO to say, we're not going to stand for this. Uh, so it's incredibly important to us. The flip side of that is NATO has not fulfilled its defense obligations mm-hmm. since the very beginning. I mean, this is not a new issue. President right. Obama challenged NATO to step up to their obligations. President Bush did. If you want to keep going back, uh, President Nixon did. President Kennedy did. Uh, President Eisenhower stepped up and said to said to Europe, uh, the United States well is not is going to run dry. Uh, you've got to step up and do your own defense. So th- this, is, this has been a longstanding issue that I would hope that uh, the European nations would step up in a greater way than they have. The the reports that I'm seeing, and you can you can comment on this, is that is that there's a, the, I would say a high level of a concern um, about what the president uh, said uh, in in Britain uh, during the NATO summit uh, and and in Helsinki. But once again, the question is, what is the role of the Republican Senate in all of this? I mean, a lot of you know senators in the past have you know expressed concern, but ultimately don't really do anything tangible because uh, the political reality is that they, the GOP base stands behind Donald Trump. So what is the role of the Congress of the United States in correcting these misstatements that are made about Russian attacks? Uh, the attacks, the the uh, the undermining of our intelligence agencies uh, and our commitment to NATO. What what role do you see as a Republican, but also as a member of a co-equal, the co-equal branch of government? Well, I think the first role is to be able to speak out on it and to be able to articulate not everyone in the government shares that exact same viewpoint, uh, or we may have a similar viewpoint, but we would say it in a very different way to be able to articulate that. That matters uh, to our allies. That matters even to our enemies uh, as they have a chance to be able to hear uh, what other leaders in the American government think. 
there, I'm not sure that I would agree that there's not a pushback here. You can make statements mm-hmm. on it, but again, if you're going to do something legislatively, that does require a signature from the person who lives down the street in the White House. Uh, so I hear folks all the time say, just pass a bill and they'd be able to confront this. If it's in direct uh, contradiction to something the president's going to say, no president would sign that. And uh, so it's not as simple. It's not the role of the House and of the Senate uh, to be able to try to force legislation over the uh, over a president's head unless you know you've got a veto-proof majority to be able to help push that. Well, it is our role to be able yeah. to work through budgeting, to be able to work through how we handle treaties and alliances, and to be able to speak out to our uh, enemies and our friends. Of course, one of the questions is is whether or not a president who uh, appears to be at least uh, ambivalent about uh, the threat posed by the Russians, whether or not the federal government will take aggressive enough measures to prevent future attacks, which is why I led with that question. And maybe there was a misunderstanding. But but in fact, you are pushing legislation um, in Congress uh, on this issue of election security to prepare for any foreign interference, um, just tell me about what what your what your legislation will do, which is which also has bipartisan support. This is Secure Elections Act. Uh, this is with Amy Klobuchar that uh, we've worked on this for months. I worked with state secretaries of state uh, and with other uh, individuals here in D.C. and other groups to be able to try to get the language just right uh, to be able to actually get this done. I, I don't want to misstate here, but states are the individuals that are responsible for elections. States run elections. They're not federal uh, events that happen around the country. Each state is responsible to be able to make sure their own election is secure. But saying that, if any election is not secure in a federal election, it does affect all of us. And so there is a cooperation role uh, as much as anything. So what we're trying to be able to work towards for, uh, for Amy and I is to be able to resolve what didn't work well in 2016. So For instance, we couldn't get immediate information to the states because no one had security clearance uh, in the state secretaries of states or in the IT department. We've already changed that. We're now... Every single state has someone with security clearance, uh, most of them multiple people with security clearance, so we can do rapid communication. There wasn't enough communication from the states back to the federal government because there wasn't that ongoing communication. Several states didn't have a way to be able to audit their election. So if their election would have been hacked, if someone would have got in their voting machines, they're all electronic, no paper, no backup, no auditing, no way to be able to verify whether that election was correct or not. That's a very dangerous thing for our democracy. Uh, We have five states that still right now have no way to be able to verify or audit their election when it's all said and done. So we're trying to work through the process to be able to push states and say, you're responsible for your election. You can pick the system that works best, but you have to have a system that can be audited. And after the election is over, everyone needs to do what's called risk limiting audits just to kind of spot check the election to make sure that there wasn't some anomaly that happened so that people can trust election day really was accurate. Yeah, we're getting a sense from some of the indictments about the extent of uh, the the uh, the at least the willingness of the Russians to attack our democracy. So, you know, it's sort of doubling back on something else that the president said. Do you believe that the Robert Mueller investigation is a witch hunt? No, I don't. And I, I don't think it's a witch hunt. And I also think that they have been able to harvest several indictments there that are entirely reasonable. Internet agency being one of those and the oligarchs that are connected to funding the social media attacks uh, onto Russian intelligence entities and individuals that are working to be able to uh, harvest information from voter databases or to be able to attack state election systems. Uh, obviously, those are things that are directly related. Now, the, the challenge becomes some of the indictments like Paul Manafort. 
Manafort, what he's being indicted for and, and going to trial now for, is not something related really to the election or to what was pertinent at that time. Uh, it was some of his activities well before he was ever on the Trump team that he's been indicted for. That's been some of the frustration to say, as much as possible, we need Robert Mueller and his team to stay on target, stay on focus on the key issue and try to get this resolved. Uh, I still default back to the Iran-Contra uh, special counsel that was done. That was six years long uh, and it just drug out forever. President Reagan was out of office and they were still doing uh, the special counsel work. Uh, I, I would hope that Robert Mueller's team would stay on focus enough that they would be able to answer the key questions that need to be answered, address those, and then to be able to allow the nation to be able to deal with other issues. Well, Paul Manafort was the chairman of the Trump campaign and obviously had uh, deep ties, um, financial right. and political and personal, to to the Russians. Do you think that going after him is, in fact, uh, a sign that the Mueller investigation is, in fact, losing focus or that is not part of their uh, their remit? It's it's hard to be able to tell. Initially, there was all the conversations and say they're going to charge him with all of these other things and to try to get him to roll over on the Trump campaign. Uh, the hard part is the farther this goes, the more it looks like he doesn't have anything. According on the Trump campaign, there wasn't anything there. And so now they're going through the process of trying to convict him uh, and going to trial on a unrelated issue. Uh, well, I, I get I, I get some of the uh, prosecutorial uh, strategy that goes with it, um, but the key thing is we need to have people that are working on the prosecution actually stay on focus as much as possible rather than drag it out chasing other things. What would your reaction be if President Trump fired Robert Mueller, fired Rod Rosenstein, fired uh, Robert Mueller? Well, I don't think it's going to happen. I've had lots of folks that have asked me, would you stand up for their defense? Absolutely, I would, but also the president's probably said 10 times he's not going to do that. Um, Sarah Sanders it gets asked over and over again in different press times, uh, are, is he going to do this? Is he considering? And they keep saying, no, 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 he's not. Uh, but still, the question still keeps coming up. I don't, I don't think you would ever do it. If you want to make a bad situation worse, uh, then you would fire somebody. That would be the equivalent of saying, if you fire Jim Comey, it makes the investigation go away. It didn't. It made the investigation grow larger. Uh, so firing Rosenstein, uh, firing Mueller wouldn't make the investigation go away. It would accelerate it and make it even bigger. Uh, so it doesn't solve anything for the president. And again, my, my main focus is for Robert Mueller to be able to do the job that he has to do uh, for the sake of the American people, do it as impartial as possible, and then to complete it. Whichever direction that it goes, uh, getting to a conclusion on it matters. There, there is legislation that that is at least out there um, and, and has been passed through uh, a Senate committee that would protect Robert Mueller, make it more difficult uh, for the president to fire him. Mitch McConnell is saying that he will not bring it up for a vote. If he did bring it up for a vote, would you vote for it? And <laughs> uh, you know what? I've not even looked at it, honestly. I've heard about it. But that that's just not a consideration for me because I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't, number one, I don't think it's needed. Uh, number two, it's never going to happen. And there, the, the, there are constitutional issues with it as well. That any individual that works in the executive branch for whatever role to say the executive branch doesn't have the authority to be able to do that or to be able to have oversight of it, you've got a clear constitutional issue on top of everything else. I want to keep coming back to this question of, of the role of the United States Senate and of the, of, of the Congress. Uh, you have been critical of the president's unilateral imposition of tariffs on steel and aluminum. I have. And yet the Senate seems to be, once again, reluctant to pass legislation that would reclaim your constitutional powers, your authority over those kinds of, of, of taxes. Why not? 
uh, at least passed legislation that would say, hey, look, you know, in our system of government, the president of the United States cannot simply impose ma- billions of dollars in, in, in tariffs, you know, claiming national security uh, concerns without consulting uh, Congress. So we actually did pass a piece that was 88 to, uh, right. to 11, I believe. Uh, that was a messaging piece to be able to send to the White House to say, I'll, just so you'll know, the Senate does not agree that 232 uh, is uh, is just unilateral. You can use it for whatever you want to. So it was a clear message. We, uh, again, as I've stated before, we, we could pass something. Uh, the House could try to pass something. The president's not going to sign that because he's in the middle of all the negotiations. It's an area that we need to clean up. This is something that uh, President Obama did regularly, is that he looked for an area where there was a gray area in the law or an interpretation uh, that he could make with it and then extended executive powers far beyond uh, what had been considered originally in the statute. President Trump is doing the exact same thing that President Obama did, is that he's taken a 232 waiver uh, that uh, originally was dis- uh, determined for national security and is redefining national security in an entirely novel way uh, that shouldn't be done. And uh, so now, we'll have to be able to clean this up in the days ahead, but it's very difficult to do midstream. Uh, no, I, I give you credit for speaking out on a number of these issues and your, and your willingness to be critical. But let's go back to some of the things that we, we've talked about here. We, you know, the, the president uh, you know, in, 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 in Helsinki sides with Vladimir Putin over our intelligence agencies, you know, calls Robert Mueller a, a witch hunt, imposed tariffs without consultation of, uh, with, 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 with Congress. And even though members of the Senate have been critical what I'm hearing you say is there's nothing we can actually do about it. You are a United States Senate. This is the Senate of the United States. Republicans control this. Is there no legislative response to any of these issues, none of which are trivial? Oh, none of which are trivial, uh, to say the least. So the initial check that's on the executive branch, as you know from the Constitution, is not only the legislative branch, but it's also the judicial branch. Is what President Obama faced the most and was his greatest frustration uh, when he would far extend executive powers, the courts would step in and would say, no, you've gone past your boundary and this is going to go through a court system. Uh, this is the same thing that's being faced right now on immigration issues with the president, where the courts are, have stepped in and they're trying to evaluate this. Uh, that's the very first check on, on any kind of executive powers or overextension. The 232 is especially difficult because we're in the middle of a series of tariffs uh, that are being imposed out there. And this is not that simple to just say, we'll just snap back right. uh, because tariffs are already in place and other nations already have tariffs. If you remove tariffs, does that guarantee other nations just immediately drop theirs? No, it certainly does not. Uh, so at, at, at this point, uh, we're trying to be able to work through on tariffs in particular to say to the president, resolve these issues, uh, resolve any of them. Uh, quite frankly, every time we turn around, there's a new nation uh, that's involved in a tariff fight with us, whether it's Mexico, Canada, South Korea, Japan, China, uh, the EU, over and over again, there's an extension of additional tariffs uh, that are being pushed that directly hurt the American economy and directly hurt American consumers. Uh, we're telling the, the White House, resolve some of these issues. Pick Canada and Mexico. The NAFTA fight's been the longest of these. Get that resolved as quickly as you can and then move on to the next country. But stop having every country in the world be a barrier to us. You can't say that the EU, uh, while they're our allies uh, in NATO, are suddenly our enemies on trade. Uh, they're not our foe. Uh, they're an economic competitor to us, but they're certainly not our foe. 
which of course the president labeled them as uh, as our as our foe. Well, the you know the history of the United States Senate is is rich in in uh, the the ability of the Senate to push back against administrations. I heard uh, somebody last night said, you know, the uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge at one point was the you know chairman of the Foreign uh, Relations Committee or whatever it was called at the time, and you know successfully derailed a lot of what uh, Woodrow Wilson wanted to do, whether he was right or wrong. William Fulbright um, certainly uh, aggressively took on the Vietnam War. You know, there's a long history of members of the United States Senate, chairman of committees, the majority of the United States Senate, really, you know, on issues of principle and national significance, really aggressively being willing to invoke their congressional powers to go after the president. And I guess people who are, you know, not in in the body, and I understand the political problems, but they're looking at the Senate and going, where is that tradition? Where's the willingness to do something other than simply issuing a press release or sending a message? So I, I would only tell them they should read their history carefully to be able to see how long those battles really took. They're typically not something that occurred over a weekend. Uh, they're typically not something that occurred over a month. Most of those battles you just described mm-hmm. even were things that were over years of time of back and forth, typically done around appropriations and cutting off funding or to be able to stop on nominations and to be able to uh, have the leverage points that you're right, the United States Senate has. Uh, but you you started the lowest element and you continue to be able to ramp it up. And you will see that with what's happening in the Senate right now is that you see a continual ramping up of saying we've got to be able to engage in trade and foreign policy in a way that actually helps us as a country long term. One of the things that was uh, most striking to me as somebody who who's watched uh, the trajectory of, of conservative politics over the last uh, several uh, decades has been that. For a very, very long time, uh, Republicans and conservatives said that they took the deficit very seriously. We're very concerned about the national debt. I'm from Wisconsin and probably had 100 conversations with Paul Ryan about uh, about the looming debt crisis that we were facing, the intergenerational transfer of, of wealth. And yet between the tax cut and the omnibus spending bill, it certainly looks as if this Republican government is presiding over the expansion of deficits as far as the eye can see with a dramatic expansion of the national debt. And I guess I'm wondering what happened to concern about the debt and the deficit because it doesn't, at least on the outside, doesn't even appear to be on the radar screen anymore. Oh, it certainly is for many of us. Uh, and uh, it, let me let me take the two issues you just raised. Uh, it was interesting to me with some of our Democratic colleagues that were very concerned about the tax bill that may increase the deficit $80 billion a year. They were adamantly opposed to it, but they were very supportive of the omnibus bill that would definitely increase our deficit mm-hmm. by $300 billion. Uh, so I, that, that was a, a fascinating side-by-side for me between the two to say they had no issue with dramatically increasing spending, but had a big issue with the tax cut piece. Now, the issue on the tax cut, uh, the tax cut, you're right, is, is an economic estimate for us. Uh, it, we had it, to reduce the taxes in the way that we did. The best guess that we had is if we had a 0.4% increase in GDP, it would offset the tax cuts with additional revenue coming in. Because if more people have a job, if more jobs are actually making more money, there's more taxes coming in. So if you had a 0.4% increase in GDP, it offsets that. As of this year so far, we've had over a 1% increase in GDP, well exceeding, twice as high as what was needed to be able to offset that. So I'm still unconvinced that the tax reductions are actually going to reduce our income coming in. But we'll know by the end of the year and be able to see that directly. Uh, As far as the omnibus, I'm with you. I was very opposed to the omnibus. I still remain so. 
even the rescission package that came back to us lost by one vote in the Senate, uh, which was exceptionally frustrating to me. We didn't have a single Democrat that voted with us uh, to be able to cut the rescission package. And we were one vote short of a Republican uh, that didn't vote with us on that. <clears throat> and that was to cut $15 billion. If we can't cut $15 billion in rescissions, uh, we're in a very bad spot. So I am, I am concerned about that. There's a, a budget reform working group that I'm on where there's eight Republicans and eight Democrats that are working uh, consistently. We met for an hour and a half today. We met for three hours yesterday uh, working on trying to reform the way we do budgeting because, quite frankly, our process is one of the problems that we have of actually getting a budget together, that there's no moment to be able to work on deficit reduction. Every moment is about how much more you spend. There's not ever a moment to talk about how do we actually get on top of our debt and deficit. I just want to step back from these 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 issues here, um, because the first thing when I was sitting down, knowing that we were going to be talking today, was of, of course I, I googled Senator Langford Trump, and one of the first things that came up was GOP Senator Trump is not a role model for my kids. I guess I wanted to, to talk a little bit about what is it like being a conservative Republican elected official in the age of Trump. You have been willing to say, unlike most Republicans, at least Republican voters, that you don't consider him to be a role model. And the quote that I'm reading here is, I don't want my kids to speak the way he he uh, speaks. And that has been a challenge for quite a <clears throat> bit of time. How do you balance this out between policy and personal behavior in a way, in the way he has his own unique style? I don't speak that way. I don't tweet that way. I don't interact with people that way. I don't treat my staff the way he treats his staff. So Talk about, you know, how you balance in your mind. This is the leader of your party. You vote with him most of the time. And yet you're apparently willing to say this is not a man that, you know, that is the president of the United States that is a role model for kids, which used to kind of matter to conservatives. <laughs> and it should continue to matter, not just to conservatives, liberals and progressives as well. Yes. Uh, should care about that. that. I think that's been the the cornerstone of the Me Too movement that's happened through media, that's happened through uh, Hollywood, that's happened through uh, Washington, D.C., is a renewed focus on your personal behavior and your personal life really does matter. And we should hold people to a greater account and ask them to be better role models. I made a statement even in uh, early 2016 uh, when I think there were still 38 Republicans running for the presidency at the time, <laughs> right. uh, that it, when people ask me, what are you looking for? Who are you supporting? My statement even at that time is, hey, I don't have a dog in this that I'm going to step out and do a public support for, but I'd like to have somebody that was a role model. Uh, at the end of that time, by the time we got to the end of it, I was able to say, I don't have a role model uh, that's running. And so that actually that statement that you had is, is not a new statement for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been existing uh, for a long time. Uh, I, I always prefer that in leaders, and I think it's helpful in whatever setting that you're in uh, to be able to have somebody that you would say to your kids, that you'd say to families, that's somebody to be able to emulate. You may agree or disagree with policy areas, but I think there's somebody of, uh, that you would em emulate their lifestyle because they help us uh, to be able to help the next generation to be able to make wise choices in it. Saying all that, uh, I don't have the ability to be able to pick everyone that I work with. Uh, the people of Oklahoma uh, selected me, selected Jim Inhofe. We're the two senators from Oklahoma. Uh, other states select the other 98. Uh, the entire country selects the president. Uh, so you, you don't pick who you work with. You work with who is there. Uh, there are areas that the president and I can find common agreement on. Uh, some of the judicial areas. I think he's done a wise job being able to walk through a lot of the judicial candidates uh, through both circuit courts, district courts, and the Supreme Court. And as I look through their judicial philosophy, 
I seem to line up very well to say, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Don't want to know how you're going to vote on every issue. I want to know, are you going to stick close to the Constitution? Are you going to stick close to what the law says and not try to be a super legislator, uh, but to actually force the Congress to do the legislation that they need to do, uh, but to be able to make sure the executive branch and the legislative branch don't overstep the Constitution? I think it's important long term. I think there are other areas that I can agree with the president on, be able to work with him on. Uh, but just like with everyone else in my life, whether it's someone at a restaurant that owns a restaurant that I may really like their food, but I don't like their lifestyle, uh, or I may have somebody that I work with as a plumber uh, that I really like the quality of their work, but I don't necessarily agree with who they are on that. Uh, you look for the quality of the work and the tasks they do. We all do that every single day as Americans uh, because we have respect for each other in the process, and we can agree or disagree on different life choices. We can agree or disagree on words and statements and behavior. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all going to find a way to be able to work together. And for some reason as a country, we've lost the ability to be able to have some civil discourse and civil disagreements where I can disagree with you strongly, mm -hmm. but still respect you deeply. What role has Donald Trump played in eroding that, that culture of, of civility and civil discourse? Interestingly enough, I kind of back up a little bit farther from that because I don't think Donald Trump eroded our civil discourse. I think he is uh, an, a mirror to the country of where we already were. Um, Donald Trump's not going to be elected president if the country wasn't already in that spot. Uh, so for the past couple of decades, our civil discourse has eroded. And I, I, I tell people, if you think that Washington, D.C. and people in D.C. are an anomaly for the country, <laughs> I disagree. Washington, D.C. is a mirror to the country. This is who we've become. This is who we are. And if we don't like what we see in the mirror of D.C., then we have to deal with this as a country, as families and as individuals. Uh, that, I have that's, of, yeah. Well, I'm I have sorry, lots that, of folks that say they don't like the president's, yeah. uh, the way he tweets, the what he says online, all those kind of things. I say, really, let me look at your social media page. What do you say about restaurants that you don't like? What do you say about somebody that cut you off in traffic? What do you say about a teacher that made you mad? You know, what what what, what is it that you say online? And they say, well, I'm different. I'm like, no, you aren't. We're a representative republic. Uh, who we are ends up being who's elected. And if we want to see a different way of being elected, then we have to individually live our lives different as well. Um, well, of course, there is a distinction between the president of the United States who uses his bully pulpit to bully and lie and somebody who might uh, post something about a restaurant. Wouldn't you agree? Sure, it would. It has much greater impact. Uh, but if you are that restaurant that's being bullied by an individual, you would see that very, very different as well. Uh, you so know, I, you, it, it, you, it's, it's yeah. each, each of us take it. If you're Harley sure. Davidson, uh, obviously <laughs> the president can go pick on Harley Davidson and it has a dramatic effect on them uh, as a company. Very different than one individual that gets mad at a restaurant, tries to belittle them uh, at some Yelp uh, review. Uh, so I, I do get that there is a difference there. Uh, but I do ask the simple question, hey, if you're going to if you're going to hold a president to a higher standard, make sure we do that first to our own selves as well. You're making a very interesting point. Now, I, I have said that Donald Trump is not the cause of, of our political you know, dysfunction and the lack of civility. He's certainly a symptom of it. I mean, he obviously, this condition was a pre-existing condition, as you say. Otherwise, we would not have elected Donald Trump. But when you say mirror, what you're basically saying is that that we are not better than this, that the American people are not fundamentally nicer or more decent than than Donald Trump. Do you really believe that? Because, you know, to a certain extent, one of my hopes and I, I go back and forth on all of this, I, I do firmly be, uh, believe and I agree with you that we often deserve the government that we get. <laughs> on the other hand, I do cling to the hope that that Americans, you know, outside of of, you know, the the, the political, you know, uh, toxic swamps are in fact just a lot more fundamentally decent and honorable and honest than what we are seeing in the White House. But when you say that, that he's a mirror, 
you're basically saying is that the American people are what? We had like 300 million little Donald Trumps? <laughs> no, of, of course not. Uh, but I am saying that uh, that who we are as a personality gets reflected in who we elect. Uh, so you can look at that state to state. You can look at attitudes of where we are. I have uh, folks all the time to say that the uh, that my Democratic colleagues are are um, too complacent to Donald Trump. They need to do more to shut the government down. They need to do more action. They need to do more resistance. Uh, that that is a a trend that's out there that I smile and say, wait a minute, that sounds very similar to what Republicans were saying uh, in 2010 to President it Obama. Does. The Democrats <laughs> said that was shutting down. That's unfair. You shouldn't do that. Uh, so uh, again, this this tends to swing back and forth as people say, well, that's fair when our side does it. It's not fair when the other side does. And I think it's just for us in our own civil discourse, we should examine who we are personally to be very attentive to that uh, before we pass judgment on someone else. And of course, there there aren't two Donald Trumps, uh, just like there aren't two Charlies, there aren't two Jameses in this uh, for who I am. Uh, I think, but we have a responsibility to be able to who who we are. But we as a nation uh, have hit a point that would say that kind of civil uh, discourse. And what happened during the election with the president was very upfront with who he is and, and his own swagger and style uh, that that enough of the country said, you know, I'm fine with that, uh, that they want to be able to go through it based on the policies. Uh, we've seen that with other leaders in the past. Uh, again, I go back to the 1990s that uh, on the whole, uh, Democrats were able to look aside on Bill Clinton's uh, infidelity and say his personal life doesn't matter. But now, decades later, uh, there's not an interview Bill Clinton does that they're not bringing up the Me Too movement and saying to him, hey, now we're going to hold you to a higher standard. But years ago, that wasn't so. So that's well, just, years that, ago, that's just, that's just the uniqueness yeah. of it. Um, listen, I appreciate uh, the, the time that you've given us, and I appreciate this discussion. And hopefully we can continue the conversation um, at, a, at a future point. Thank you so much, Senator. You bet, Charlie. Take care. All right. Thanks. The Daily Standard Podcast is brought to you today by The Lending Club. For decades, credit cards have been telling us to buy it now and pay for it later with interest, pretty much like the federal government. Despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control fast. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high credit card, interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. So today, you can go to LendingClub.com standard, check your rate in minutes, and borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com slash standard lendingclub.com slash standard all loans made by web bank member fdic equal housing lender thanks for listening to today's uh, daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again